Uh, please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, in the church Bible it's on page 62, Exodus chapter 11. We left off last week with Pharaoh threatening Moses' life. Uh, if I see you again, I will put you to death. But having rejected Moses, who has consistently interceded for Pharaoh, what hope is there left for either Pharaoh or the Egyptians? That's right where we pick up 11, verse 1. And we're actually going to read all the way through the middle of chapter 12, verse 32. It's a little bit longer passage. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each one can eat, you shall make account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. This is God's word. Uh, the passage we've just read doesn't state theology. It's teaching about God in straightforward propositions, like the reading from Romans earlier in our passage. Rather, it gives us a series of pictures. 
And that's what I want to focus on this morning, is three pictures. A death in every house, blood on the doorframe, and a meal to remember. The first picture this passage presses on us is a terrible picture. A death in every house. A death in every house. As chapter 11 begins, uh, it seems like the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh has, re- has ended. And yet as we read on, we realize those first couple verses is either God speaking to Moses in the moment or a flashback to something God has earlier told Moses. He says to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring on Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterwards he will let you go from here. Up till this point, Pharaoh, uh, God keeps warning Moses that Pharaoh will not let Israel go after the various plagues. But now he says, one more plague, and it will be successful. He will let people go. The probationary period has come to an end. Judgment will come. The match between God and Pharaoh has entered the end game. This word used in in verse 1, a plague, one more plague, is a, a, a different word for plague that's only used here in the book of Exodus. Uh, but elsewhere in the Bible, it usually refers to some sort of a disease. It's not exactly clear what it means for Egypt until Moses speaks to Pharaoh in 11 verse 4. Thus says the Lord, at midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. In all the previous plagues, Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron mediated in a variety of ways. So they were told to stretch their hands or staff over the waters, over the land, over the heavens. One time Moses is told to toss soot in the air. But now with this final plague, Moses and Aaron too are on the sidelines. God himself will enter the land of Egypt. And when God himself goes out into the midst of Egypt, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! you and all the people who follow you, and after that, I will go out. And that's just what happens. Once again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Once again, Pharaoh ignores the warning. Here Moses tells him because there's a genuine opportunity to avert this disaster. And yet as Moses leaves, what does God whisper in his ear? Pharaoh's not going to listen to this time. or He's not going to listen again. He won't listen to you. And so we read in 12, 29 through 30, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was dead. A death in every house. It's a terrible picture. Uh, Jay Sklar, Old Testament scholar, suggests that in fact this is one of the most troubling episodes in the whole Old Testament. And so what are we to make of it? 
Uh, Sklar suggests a number of considerations. Uh, I've elaborated a bit, so I have five. First, in Exodus 13, 15, when Moses is telling Israel about the significance of this, he narrates it this way. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. In the first instance, it is Pharaoh's stubborn unwillingness to let Israel go that leads to this point. Three cycles of plagues have come and gone as warnings. And so what do we see? A self-centered, obsessive king's arrogance leads his people to destruction. It's a story repeated time and again throughout history. Second, uh, Sklar points out that firstborn refers to birth order, not necessarily to age. And so in many cases, the firstborn in the household would have been young adults or even grown adults. Remember when Jacob and Esau fight about the rights of the firstborn? They're basically adults at that point. And we need to remember that other Egyptians besides the Pharaoh are culpable. Back in chapter 1, we read that Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. We don't know whether his servants complied or not, but we know that none objected. And we do see several times the Egyptian taskmasters, the sort of middle management, abusing Hebrew slaves. And all of Egypt would have benefited from Israel's slave labor. And so the Egyptians are all complicit. Third, the punishment fits the crime. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh sought to kill Israel's sons. Now Pharaoh and the Egyptians lose their firstborn sons. In Exodus 3, 7, the Lord tells Moses, I have heard Israel's cry because of their taskmasters. Now the same word is repeated. A great cry such as never has been heard goes up in the land of Egypt. Fourth, even in this punishment, there is mercy. Pharaoh sought to kill all of Israel's sons. The Lord only strikes the firstborn. And if this is, is a disease, like 11.1 seems to imply, virulent fatal diseases usually strike whole households, and yet the Lord limits it only to the firstborn. But fifth, even granting all of that, it remains the case that some firstborn would have died who were too young to be in any real sense morally accountable for the actions of Egypt. And so what do we make of it? Sklar reminds us that we must distinguish between temporal judgment on the one hand, death in this life, and our eternal destiny on the other. Throughout the Old Testament, we read a variety of stories where God uses invading armies and famines and diseases to punish his people Israel. And those invading armies and diseases and famines strike uh, indiscriminately. Surely people who were faithful would have been killed by those invading armies. Okay, but that doesn't mean that their eternal destiny is to be destroyed. We need to distinguish between those. Everyone who is born in this world eventually dies. The real question is, what is your eternal destiny? And that really then gets us to the heart of the matter. It doesn't make it any less uncomfortable because I think many of us really don't like the idea that there's not only temporal judgment, but an eternal judgment. What will happen? Well, in the case of these young firstborn, we must trust, as Abraham put it, that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. 
We trust the God who is just to make just decisions. But it's, this picture is for us as well. Death comes to every house. Death comes to every house. And if we reject God's word like Pharaoh, if we ignore God's warning, we too will stand accountable before the judge of all the earth. Death comes to every house, and Israel is no exception in the story. And so we come to the second picture, blood on the doorframe. Blood on the doorframe. In 11.7, Moses warns Pharaoh that God will again distinguish between Egypt and Israel. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and and Israel. But now this distinction isn't based on geography between Egypt and Gosham. It's not based on ethnicity between Egyptians and Israelites. In fact, in 1222, Moses warns the Israelites, none of you shall go out of the door until morning, for the Lord is passing through the land. Up until this point in the book of Exodus, the problem is, how will Israel get out from under Egypt's oppression? From being enslaved. But now a new problem emerges. How can anyone stand when the Lord himself passes through the land? Who can be safe when the Lord passes through the land? And the solution is strange. Israel's deliverance and protection hangs on a meal of lamb and what you do with the blood when you butcher it. Let's look more closely at the first part of these Passover instructions in verse 12, or chapter 12. The instructions begin with a new beginning. Moses says the calendar is actually going to reset, and this month, uh, it's kind of in the middle of spring when plants start coming up, this month is now going to be the beginning of your calendar. It's not pegged to any equinox or anything like that. It's fixed to God's act of deliverance. It's a sort of new creation, recreation resetting the calendar. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Notice that the congregation of Israel all acts together in this sacrificial service, but within that, each family is a unit. Uh, it and, and, and the parents put up the sign, and the children will be delivered. We see both this corporate and family dimension to the way God's covenant works out, that families as a whole are brought under the sign that brings protection. The lambs serve as a vicarious substitute for the firstborn of Israel, and so it's important to get the correspondence right. If the household's too small for a lamb, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what you shall eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Okay, it's important to get a one-to-one -one correspondence because the lamb serves as a substitute. Singles, elderly, those without children join up with their nearest neighbor to keep the feast. It's important to select an appropriate animal for the sacrifice. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, you can take it from the sheep or the goats. And then the family keeps the sheep, or lamb, goat, kid, for four days. It's not exactly clear why, but think about it. They identify with the lamb. They've got it tied up behind the house for four days. 
The parents are off making bricks. The kids go and feed it and water it and take care of it. They care for it. They get to know it a bit. And then, on the fourth day, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. The lamb then provides a meal and a sign. We'll talk about the meal in a minute, but let's focus on the sign. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Uh, that lintel, it could either be the, 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 the header or the, or the jam at the bottom of the door. Uh, the word kind of means both. But the idea is that the door frame as a whole is coated in blood. And if we jump down a few verses to 12.12, we see the significance of the sign. The Lord says to Moses, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In 12.12, you see Egypt repeated three times. The land, the inhabitants, man and beast, and the gods, all are accountable to the Lord. Verse 13, but the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the blood on the doorframe, it has twofold significance. It's a sign for Israel. Okay, when they look up and see that blood on their door, it's a sign for them, a reassurance, a divine promise saying, I will not strike those in your house. But it also has significance for God himself. It says when God sees the blood, then he will pass over. And thankfully in Hebrew and in English, that same play on words works. The feast is named for the act. It's called Passover because it's the time when God passed over his people. Israel is kept safe from the plague. And so the lamb in some sense is a vicarious substitute, a death in the place of the firstborn. Okay, when God passes through the land, he will see a death has already come to this house. But the lifeblood of the lamb in and of itself has no saving power. Rather, it's a sign. It points beyond itself. It's a sign of God's gracious willingness to spare Israel, to pass over. And you see, for the first time in the book of Exodus, Israel themselves are called to do something to participate in the process of deliverance. Up until now, they've just been sitting on the sidelines while God goes to battle with Pharaoh, but now they have to enact this sign, painting the blood on the doorframe. It would have been really public, okay? It's on their doorframe. Everybody can see it. And if we take Moses' words a bit earlier in chapter 8 at face value, the sacrifices of the Israelites are an abomination to the Egyptians. So there's some risk even to identifying yourself prominently by the sacrifice that the Egyptians find abominable. Taking this sign and putting it on the doorframe is a public act that bears some risk. And so it's an act of faith, an act of trust, a sign that you trust that the Lord will indeed save, both that he will pass over and that he will bring us out of the land of Egypt. And then we have a third picture in this passage, a meal to remember. A meal to remember. The lamb's blood is put on the doorframe the lamb's flesh is roasted over the fire and eaten the night of the Passover. It's a meal to remember in two senses. First, everyone would remember, everyone who was there would remember that anxious meal. 
Uh, you can think while the father is slaughtering, butchering the lamb, getting it ready to cook, uh, the firstborn son or daughter comes out a few times to check. You collected the blood, right, Dad? Uh, you're hanging on to that, right, Dad? You're putting it on the doorframe, right, Dad? Maybe after dinner when they go to bed, they get up again to double check. The blood is on the doorframe, right? And as they sit down to eat, there's anxiety all around. What will Egypt do? Will the Lord indeed pass over? Is this indeed the moment when we will be delivered from Israel? And what happens when they wake up in the morning? The firstborn gets up early. Okay, I'm still here. The parents probably put off, you know, doing dishes, dragging out their chores, checking on their children a few times through the night. The firstborn gets up. I'm still here. They hear the crying, though, of the Egyptians, the wailing throughout the land. They see the ashes in the fireplace. They remember the lamb burnt in their place. It's a meal to remember. But second, it's a meal to remember in another sense. It's a meal given to keep this memory alive. A meal to remember to teach about God's deliverance, what he has done in Egypt. And so careful instructions are given for how to keep this meal. What sort of animal to cook? A male, a year old, lamb or goat. How much to cook? Only as much as you can eat in one sitting. There's no leftovers for your leaving the land. How to cook it? Roasted over fire with bitter herbs. Uh, and unleavened bread, how to eat it with your belt fastened and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and what to do if there is leftovers. Burn it all in the fireplace. It's a simple meal. In modern terms, we'd say it's like sort of unseasoned or lightly seasoned barbecue with a bit of pita bread, but you're supposed to eat it bundled up with your boots and your outside coat on. But it's not a one-off. 12.14 says, This is a memorial day for you. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Uh, this week, at least the uh, non-Canadians among us celebrated 4th of July. Uh, sorry, Austin, got to tease you a little bit there. But 4th uh, uh, of July. And what's 4th of July about? It's the founding of America, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the break from England, all those sorts of founding stories and it shapes our national identity in a certain sense. And the Passover meal is meant to be kept as a similar event, a recurring memorial celebration, a feast that shapes the community around certain ideals. Okay, this is what kind of people you are. Not people who signed a Declaration of Independence and threw tea into the water, but a people who painted your doorpost with blood and were delivered by the Lord. That's what kind of people you are. It's an annual meal to remember, a meal with a message. And so Moses tells them, when your children ask you, what do you mean by this service? How come we're eating this funny bread and simple feast every year? You answer, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Okay, families play a role. The blood goes on the doorframe and that whole family is spared from the death. But simply living in that house isn't enough. The message has to be passed on from one generation to the next. Parents are tasked with keeping the memory alive, with telling their children about the wondrous works of the Lord. And you see how many different symbols in this meal or different elements of this meal are used as teaching devices, as object lessons. The flavor, flavors have meaning, okay? It's to be se seasoned 
It'll go quicker if I just pause and <laughs> take a drink, gather myself. It's seasoned with bitter herbs, and that same word bitter is actually used earlier in chapter 1 to describe the bitter lives that Israel lived in Egypt under the slavery of the Egyptians. Okay, so the flavor that it's seasoned with is a teaching lesson. The ingredients have meaning, okay? Unleavened bread is something you make on the go quickly. It's a sort of pita bread. I personally uh, think pita makes better frisbee than food, but that's not really the point that it's not your favorite bread. It's bread that you can make quickly on the go because after the Passover, Israel's to get up and start walking with the Lord. The clothes have meaning, okay? You're going to eat it dressed in a certain way because the Lord's victory over Egypt is going to be so definitive and sudden that the Egyptians will drive you out this very day. Be ready to go. And we need to be alert for these sorts of teaching opportunities. Flavors, foods, clothes, all sorts of things bear meaning, have significance, can be used to teach. In this period in history, people did not eat meat very often, and so the meal itself would have been significant, providing strength to the Israelites for the journey ahead. And this meal, if you read through the Old Testament, crops up at significant points of spiritual renewal in Israel's history. When Joshua enters the land, they celebrate the first Passover in the land. And Joshua and his generation are some of the most faithful in Israelite history. Uh, During the time of Hezekiah and Josiah, there's important seasons of religious renewal, and central to those is celebrating the Passover again. Likewise, in the time of Ezra, they celebrate the Passover in the land. What's happening? They're returning to the basic message that the Lord saves, that the Lord is victorious, and that leads to a season of spiritual renewal. And that pattern continues into the New Testament. The picture, on the, blood frame, uh, uh, the, blood, the picture of blood on the door frame, the meal to remember, are richly evocative. And so they both point forward to Jesus Christ, and they're used by the early Christians to make sense of what Jesus has accomplished. In the last week before his death and resurrection, do you remember what Jesus went up to Jerusalem to do? He went up for the Passover feast. Luke especially drives the point home. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Tell the master of a certain house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room so that I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And they went and they found and they prepared the Passover. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke makes sure even his densest readers get the point. This is happening at Passover. It's a Passover meal. And yet, there is one thing missing from this Passover meal that Jesus has longed to eat with his disciples. In none of the Gospels does it mention any lamb present at the table. Of course, in the instructions for Passover, the lamb's the central part of the meal. But what do we read? Jesus broke bread he drank wine. Maybe they ate lamb, maybe they didn't, but the gospel writers never mention a lamb. Why? Because of what Jesus says at that meal. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. He passes the cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The lamb is there at the head of the table, the host of the feast, distributing his own body and blood. 
When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul makes the same explicit identification in 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. The New Testament transfigures the symbolism of Passover. Christ's blood is now, as it were, on the doorframe. It's under Christ's blood that we shelter. It's the sign to us of God's grace. In the words of Charity Lee Bancroft's hymn, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. A death has already come to the house. God's justice is satisfied, and so he can pass over. Christ's blood on the doorframe above the house means that God will indeed pass over. Like Israel, our faith is expressed in public signs. The waters of baptism replace blood on the doorframe, but it's still a public act that identifies those who are God's own, that expresses our faith, our trust that the Lord will indeed save. And then the Lord leaves his followers with a meal, a meal to remember, the Lord's Supper. It's another simple meal, bread and wine, but again, rich with symbolism. And what is the symbolism? Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood poured out for the remission of sins. Just as surely as Pharaoh, as the Egyptians, as Israel had to encounter God's presence, either in their own strength and be destroyed or being sheltered under blood on the doorframe, so each one of us will stand one day before the judge of all the earth. And our eternal destiny is not determined by our own good works, by our own well wishes. It's determined by one thing. Is there blood over the doorframe? Is your house marked by Christ's blood? Is your life marked by Christ's blood? Has there already been a death in the house on your behalf? If Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed on your behalf, then you have confidence. There's nothing to fear. If you're unsure how you answer that question, what happens in the life to come, come and grab me after the service. I would love to talk some more with you about that. Let's turn now to pray. Lord, uh, this is both an awful and an awesome passage that we have meditated on. On the one hand, we see the awfulness of a death coming to every household. And of course, it points us ahead to Christ's own death, that death came even to your household, that your own beloved son was given to make a way for us to stand. And yet it's also an awesome passage. It describes your deliverance of your people from bondage and slavery. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be at work in our hearts our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, let us live in the new life and freedom that has been won for us. Break the bondage of sin and oppression over our lives. For others, Lord, perhaps they hear this as a troubling passage. The death of the firstborn son is a warning to all of us that we one day, too, will have our eternal destiny determined as we stand before you. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, apply the work of Christ to lives even now. 
we bring these prayers to you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Passover lamb sacrificed in our place. Amen.